Evening, everyone. It's great to be here. I actually was here for graduate school just a few months ago, or <laughs> maybe 23 years ago. It's my first time back on campus in all of those years. So it's, I've been reflecting on my time here and just thinking about what a special place it is and how grateful I am for the time. I made lifelong friends just in that one short year. Uh, and I would commend to you to take advantage, drink deeply of the formation while you're here because it's really a, a special place. And I think in a lot of ways distinctive considering what a lot of what's happening in a lot of colleges that have become absorbed in the woke movement and, and for a long time. I think it's been simmering and has been seeded in the culture for a long time and we're just seeing it explode now and escalate and leaving a lot of people kind of wondering uh, where, where, how we should respond to this and what's the Christian way to respond to this. Um, and, and I think that there's a, some, maybe it can be an uh, instinct to sort of just kind of ride under the radar and not really engage with it, thinking, you know, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't know that much about Karl Marx or all the, all the woke figures, but um, there's a saying I'm going to paraphrase, which is, you may not know about Karl Marx, but he knows about you, <laughs> and he's concerned with you and wants to affect you. So. Um, obviously, I'm anthropomorphizing an ideology. It's not, he's not actually doing that. But, but I do think that one of the common themes I hear from a lot of people is, is just, where did this come from? It seems so sudden. Um, and you know, something about it seems not quite right. And I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's some concern that I hear people saying. Um, and there's an instinct to think, well, you know, they're ostensibly a movement for justice and a movement of compassion and a movement that wants to walk alongside the suffering. And those are very Christian precepts. Um, but then there's sort, sort of certain things that come up. For example, um, on the beliefs page of Black Lives Matter, they have in their statement of beliefs that they would like to queer the culture, disrupt the nuclear family. And I think that's left a lot of people confused. What does um, queering the culture have to do with, uh, with, with justice? Uh, but I think if we understand the internal logic of the movement, we'll start to see how these things are combined for them and why they really are hard to separate. Um, and one, once you accept one part, por part portion of the ideology, you become sort of pulled into other, other precepts and other conclusions um, that, that, aren't, that are really anathema, I think, ultimately to the, to the Christian faith. Um, and also to the flourishing of the human person on a natural level. And so I kind of want to think about this differently, rather than thinking this is a movement of a political fray and I don't want to enter into it, that it rather is actually far more than a political movement, it's actually a spiritual movement. Um, and, I, and I think it's just the latest manifestation and a very effective one of how atheism gets embedded into the minds and hearts of a society, uh, almost unbeknownst to a society. Um, and so I think for that reason, there's a real duty for us to understand what is happening because it's engaging and um, in certain ways corrupting a lot of our peers and maybe even ourselves and our families and our friendships. And for those reasons, I think it's, there's a duty of charity to understand it and to know what the Christian response ought to be. So I'm, um, I'm not going to belabor the history too much because I don't want to get too boring. <laughs> and I will also just say that, uh, no, I actually think the history is really fascinating, but I'll go a little bit into that. But as Dr. Lee said, there is um, a karaoke night tonight, apparently. And as someone, little known fact, who is an ardent karaokeer, I understand the need sometimes to practice your art of karaoke. So if, if any of you just has to slip out and do a quick, I don't know, Taylor Swift song or something, I will be sympathetic to that effort. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee. 
Lee for bringing me out here and, and want to thank Doug Perry, both of you for so much for um, encouraging me to come out and to, for making it happen. It, it's really meaningful and special to be back at a campus that I love so much and to be able to speak to you. I don't get to talk to college students that much, so this is fun for me. So I think the, the first thing we want to do is just try to understand what the woke movement is. And I think a simple, just easy definition is that it's a movement which is um, trying to raise the consciousness of all, for, for, of all people uh, towards the layers of oppression in society, pervasive in society. It began with regard to race in particular, but it has spread to include gender, sexuality, feminist issues, sort of all the hot button stuff. But it, though it seems recent, and the term is recent, it actually has presuppositions that date back quite a, quite a while. Um, I would actually pin it on a snake in a garden, cajoling a first woman that ye shall be as gods. And I think that really is the foundation of the movement, is just trying to deify ourselves. Um, and that's why I think it's, it, it, we need to understand that so that we don't get co-opted by the, getting sucked into the Christian precepts and then get co-opted into a movement that is ultimately, I think, trying to thrive off the, parasitically off the residue of a waning Christianity until it can replace it. Um, so to understand the history, we do need to pinpoint it after the, the first, the fall of the garden. Um, and I think to do that, any, you can point to a lot of different events and movements, but I, I would, I think the most obvious, clear one would be with Hegel and Marx. So just a really brief, you probably already know a lot about this. And so, um, but Karl Marx was a political theorist who um, was really captivated by a philosopher named Hegel. And the thing to understand about Hegel is that he's notoriously very difficult to understand. But if I'm gonna try to simplify him, he, he had this new conception of being, which is that being is a progression throughout time, a sort of a current throughout time, with the idea that there is an idea that manifests itself into nature, particularly into state, the state, the operation of idea with the interaction of society. And there's going to be imperfections and contradictions in that interaction, and that those need to be worked out and and moved beyond in, in an effort of progress. And then you get to a new um, uh, synthesis of those two things. And then that new synthesis will have its own contradictions and its own imperfections. And it ha you have to revolt and progress and work through those into, into a, a new stasis. And through that progression, there will be at the end of time, you're working toward, not the end of time, but at the end of this effort, there will be a place where all of the contradictions have been overcome. And that is sort of the moment of utopia where um, society has self-realized itself um, and, and we've reached this ideal state. And Marx is really captivated by this thing. It's called the dialectic, that, that process. And that really is the engine that I think is important to understand, to understand the woke movement at all. So into this engine of the dialectic, Marx said, okay, that makes sense, but he, I don't believe in this whole spirit, mind thing. I'm a strict materialist. So this is only going to be applied through the means of economics. Um, and so the, the contradictions that he discovered or identified uh, according to his philosophy were that there are um, two classes of people, the oppressors and the oppressed, and that those contradictions are going to have to be, there's going to be revolution um, and a roiling revolution until you can reach sort of an economic utopia, which would be a, a communist state. So he identified two main obstacles to revolution. One was the faith and one was the family. Well, multiple obstacles, but those are the two that he realized had to be defeated in order to have the revolution come to pass and be successful. Why those two? The faith, I, um, first and foremost, because in order to have a revolution happen, you have to have a populace that is 
um, not able to contextualize their suffering and find meaning in it, as Christianity would say, embrace your cross, um, give a context for your suffering, that your, this, this life, your sufferings and your crosses can be redemptive, uh, but rather to uh, become awakened to the misery of their lives and to, to become helpless in the face of it to the point where you are enraged. And helplessness really goes along with rage. If you feel like you can't transcend your circumstances, then it's a really short path into becoming enraged by them. And that really is what is, is the sustenance of a revolution. And secondly, the family, he wrote uh, frequently about the need to depose the father. He, and so he sort of started the, anti, the smash the patriarchy movement with the idea that any time you, any civilization, civilization that's brought to its knees is generally brought to its knees by the moral licentiousness beginning with, with men. Um, because then it leads to a cynicism and d distrust in women. And then once the moral authority is eradicated in parents, then children tend to become prone to being rebellious. And this really explodes a society from within, from the, the nexus of the family. And I think we know this in the faith, right? That we know from Our Lady of Fatima, and as well as just natural, revela or natural revolution, revelation, that the family is the cell of society. It's the way um, most children, most people who are catechized, you're, you might be catechized, you know, in, in, in mass and, and, and by um, a, a, a your confirmation classes and Sunday school or what have you. But most catechesis happens through the normal, small, ordinary, hidden ways in which family life teaches you, it, it, almost without words, or re really without words, just an embodiment of what love is. Um, that that's, there's something magical that happens, can happen in a well-ordered family, where you see the goodness, you see your irreplaceability, you see that you are loved unconditionally, and you're also challenged to grow and to be better and to, to become independent. And there's a freedom there, right? A freedom to struggle and to really be known, that you are truly known for who you are. So, um, so Marx, after the um, First World War, the German Marxists thought that Mar the revolution was inevitable, but it didn't come to pass. And so they formed this institute called the Institute of Social, Social Research, which came to be known as the Frankfurt School, and it came to the United States in 1935. And their goal was really to understand and analyze why didn't the revolution happen? Why did the proletariat not rise up? you know, this was supposed to be inevitable. And the thing that they pinned it on was that it was too, um, it, it needed to be broadened. That there's the economic, that Western society was too, had an innate deference to authority that made them really resistant to revolting. And so they needed to antagonize and create more divisions and fault lines throughout society. So rather than just have it be on class, a class war, there needed to be a war of men against women, women against men, uh, racial war, and then also people on the margins of, you know, it became spread to varying sexual identities. That these people were great soldier, potential soldiers for a revolution. And that the more fault lines you can create in a society, the more opportunity you have of really destabilizing that society uh, in multiple ways. And I think that they were right. So into that um, climate, so they, they, they said, you know, we have to, along with an um, Italian um, Marxist named Antonio uh, Gramsci, we have, to, uh, we have to get into the institutions, what's called the long march through the institutions, that we need to seed revolution, uh, you know, go underground, that we are going to seed the ideas of revolution, the Mar these Marxist ideas, into the academy, into our schools, into Hollywood. They went to Hollywood and said, you know, art is really not supposed to show people anything true or anything beautiful. Actually, truth is really irrelevant to art. 
Art needs to be for the sake of change. That's the point of art. It should be for the sake of political revolution. Um, and so every storyline, every narrative needs to be reinvent, or re, uh, reminding people of the fundamental injustice of life and the oppression, the layers of oppression in society in order to galvanize them for change. And that, I think we hear this echoed all the time now. You hear artists talk about, you know, artists are for change and we're, you know, we're showing, they, it's, it's almost a movement to show the things that are ugly rather than things that are beautiful. And we're so used to this. You know, I just grew up thinking that this is what movies are like, this is what art's supposed to be. And, um, and, you know, women's magazines are laced with all sorts of revolutionary, you know, ideas, but they're kind of couched in like glamorous celebrities. And, you know, this it came to the point, I think, for my for my generation and certainly for yours, that it's just the water in which we swim. And this is what ideology does is it creates a filter that is so invisible to you that you don't realize you're looking through a filter and you think it's the only way to see reality. And so that became a really important um, distinction, I think, and why I titled the book Awake, Not Woke, with the idea that, that this is a true deformed ideology. It takes partial truths. There is injustice in the world. You know, we need to fight for justice. And then it totalizes them. And to all of a sudden, the, you know, there's the only way you can see the world is through the lens of power dynamics. How is my, what's the power dominance in my marriage? What's the, what's the oppression dynamic at my friend's barbecue, you know, and my school? And every interaction, this is the filter that you're supposed to see according to this ideology. Every relationship, institution, and event through the lens of power as a power struggle and how to invert those power dynamics. And in contrast, I think as Catholics and Christians, we are called to think not with ideology, but with the fullness of reality. And you know, so that's why the word, I, the word awake, I think is important. Scientific reality, philosophical principles, theological revelation, natural revelation, um, you know, uh, the fullness of reality with the idea that we actually want to arrive at truth. We don't want to we don't want to manipulate truth in service to conform what is real and to fit an ideology. We want to actually be led by what is true. And there's a real freedom there, right? Because you don't have to be afraid of debate. You don't have to be afraid of, you know, what the next scientific revelation, because there, you know, we are people that are seeking for the truth. Okay. So if we, so to, to distill the ideology down, I just wanted to give like a little encapsulation of what I think the eternal logic is, and I boiled it down to three fundamental distortions, which I think form sort of an unholy trinity of the movement. The first, they're all based on a, you know, a pair of things that should be in harmony, but in the woke movement, one becomes emphasized and the other one becomes subjugated. So the three, um, the three main distortions are, the first one I would say is the emphasis on the group to the detriment of the human person. The second one is an emphasis on our will, our desires over reason or stable human nature. And the third one is an emphasis on power and rejection of any sense of right authority, collapsing of authority into power. And the, and the interesting thing I think about those three is that the three things that are rejected, the person, reason, and authority are the three characteristics of the logos. The logos being the mind, the reason of God, manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the author and authority of all. And I think he is the ultimate target of, of this movement, and, and this is just an effective channel to attack him. So the, in the first one, the emphasis on group over person, you know, people are meant to be in groups, and I think the best, um, the best example we have of that, as we I was saying earlier, is the family life. Why? It's interesting to me, the first thing, one of the first acts of family life is you're named. You're given a name. And there's something that 
speaks to the irreplaceability of every in individual that they're given a name. And we see this in sort of dystopian stories or dystopian or horrific, the horrific event of obviously the Holocaust where people are given a number, you know, a number on the arm or in Stranger Things, there's a person who's named 11 because she was just one and of a series of scientific of objects that were or subjects being scientifically experimented on. Um, and I think that speaks to something real, that there's something very dystopian about not being named because it means you're not really known. And this is one of the things that I, I think happens in the movement is that the person is valued for the sake, insofar as he or she is a totem for a group identity, that you're not valued as you are as, as in your individuality, but rather only insofar as you can further the power of the, of the movement. When, and there's a couple of examples I can give um, for that, for example, in the first Women's March in 2017, there was a group of pro-life feminists who wanted to officially, they were co-sponsoring the march. And when the organizers found out that they were pro-life, they said, oh, no, 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 you can, you can walk with us if you want, you know, it's up to you, but you cannot have any official affiliation because you're pro-life. And they were scratching their heads and they said, we, you know, we, we overlap with you on so many of these other issues, you know, we are, this is a women's march, we are women. <laughs> um, this is just, just a pro-abortion march. And I think the thing that they didn't realize um, but was made explicit in those conversations was that the, the point is not to support women so much as is to support the definition of the woman that is oriented around her oppression. And that abortion is the singular, um, singular, most symbolic and most concrete example of how a woman fights that oppression is through freeing herself, not only from the confines of being dependent on a man, but also the natural consequences of, of a, being a, a, a woman, which is her, the, the, the person who comes out of her body. And that even that person, her own child, has to be destroyed in order to sustain the movement. And I think what we see here is a very, two different, very distinct definitions of what a human being is. So as, um, uh, you know, if we speak in just, in just natural terms, a human person is traditionally, you know, according to Aristotle, would be defined as being a rational animal. Um, and that's what, that points to the, you know, what is common in all human persons. Uh, and as Christians, we would say, well, we also know that we're rational animals, but we're also defined based on the love of God, that we are defined as daughters and sons of a loving father, that we are defined in relationship to love himself. And for the woke, we are defined not by the love of God, but rather by the hatred of society or hatred of man. That oppression is centered into our identity and what is universal is pushed to the side. Um, and this is explicit in the literature that you center your, your, your political identity. Um, and so in other words, we are defined into division. We're not defined as brothers and sisters, we're defined as opponents. And I think that's an important distinction to, to see. One of the things that comes um, out of that definition is that we start to find our moral stature on, based on our victimhood. That we gain in moral stature and we gain in prominence and we gain an ability to, to have epistemic, um, epistemic knowledge based on how oppressed we are, that, they, that we have an insight into what is true um, more deeply based on how, how much victimhood we, we can claim. And so it creates a sort of perverse incentive in all of us to scan and see in which ways we can claim a mantle of victimhood, victimhood knowing that that is our virtue, has become our virtue. Um, and it creates a society that's really in constant conflict 
because you're no longer seeking to see how you can connect with someone. It's, our relationships no longer serve as a wellspring of connection, but rather as a source of opposition. Um, and, and it also incentivizes us to not only identify how we are harmed and what grievances we might have, but to publicize them. Um, and I think this is where we get kind of the virtue signaling, that phrase, you know, um, I think that that really rec reflects a shift in virtue and vice from being something that is uh, a, culp a culpable decision that we make into being something that's abstract. So your, your, um, your virtue and your vice become insofar as you assent or, or, uh, or um, descent from, or sorry, assent or reject tenets of the ideology. Um, okay, so, and one of the things that I think, um, one of the things that I think this does is that it really, it uh, encourages us to see ourselves no longer as people who have free moral agency, that we are to ascribe all of our, um, everything in our lives, not to anything within our control, but to systemic forces outside of our control. And the evil almost becomes deified in that way. It becomes sort of this omnipresent reality. Um, you hear this echoed in, for example, um, Robin DiAngelo, who would say, the question in any interaction is not how did racism occur, but how did racism manifest in this situation with the assumption that it's always going to be there, even if you can't quite put a finger on it. And the, the goal is to just know that it's there in this sort of all pervasive way. But this really creates a society full of enemies. Um, but, th but that is one, so that is the first main area of oppression that we have to fight, is these, the groups outside of ourselves that are oppressing us. But there's a second way in which we are oppressed, and this connects to the second distortion. The second distortion is the emphasis on our human will over reason or human nature. You, a shorthand for this, you could call this expressive individualism. Um, and this is basically saying that not only am I oppressed by systemic forces outside of myself, I'm actually also oppressed by the way I repress myself in the sense that I can uh, have an, a desire to conform myself to um, tra traditional sexual normative behavior in a way that represses the true liberation that is reflected in the individual desires that I might have inside. Um, and the, this assumption behind this is that it's a neo-Freudian idea that all people are polymorphously perverse and that's the natural state of things. And that growing up is a sense of sort of chaining ourselves to kind of social, the, the deference to social standards that are really repressive and um, forcing us to kind of develop a false consciousness about ourselves. And that part of our liberation is find, identifying those desires and ex ex embracing them and then living them out. Um, and that's how you liberate, that's how you become liberated. And so you're rewarded insofar as the more transgressive the desire that you can identify and live out, the greater opportunity you have for liberation. And so there's an incentive there that the more transgressive is the better way to be. And so the, a, a, deeper a deeper example of the freedom you've achieved. And I think this is one of the reasons why, for example, at Pride Parades, you'll see that there's sort of a, it's almost like a competition in the most outlandish presentation of self. You know, how can I be more bizarre? How can I be, you know, present myself in the most socially non-conforming way? Because that is part of that is a part of the way you find your freedom. Okay. Um, 
So what this ultimately leads to, and I think we this started with, is um, what this presumes is that we are not beholden to any sort of moral norm, that actually not only are our groups oppressing us, but actually the moral law oppresses us. The moral law that flows from the nature of God is part of our oppression. And fundamentally, it creates, us, it creates in us a desire to not only reject um, social norms, but also God himself, the moral law, and, and ultimately our, our very bodies. And I think we saw this, you know, uh, happening wide, you know, deeply in the sexual revolution, first and foremost, where there was this understanding that, you know, you could, anything goes, you can do whatever you want. And I think we see this now when we talk about consent. We try to hinge all of morality on consent. If there's consent, then any, you can do whatever. If there's not consent, then all of a sudden, whoa, 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 that's the last guardrail of morality with regard to sexuality. Um, and what, this, what happens is that you create a society of people who can't restrain themselves, and then you try to like, stop the inevitable violence and the, the clash of wills that's going to come from that sort of society with this kind of paper contract. But it's, you know, it's like keeping a, a wildfire at bay with a paper fence. You know, this is an insufficient place to hinge, hinge morality. Um, and, 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 uh, and, and, but fundamentally, it's a rejection of our bodies. Because any, any woman, and really any man, knows that if they're, if, you know, in the hookup culture, for example, you see, you see all these women who are feeling used and, you know, they, they consented, but, you know, they went beyond places they thought they should, they should go. But they don't have a moral vocabulary to identify that hurt because they're raised in society to say that you shouldn't feel bad about this. This is part of your liberation. But, but every woman and every man knows that what is done to your body is done to you. You know, that you and your body are integral, that you're a composite of body and soul. But this idea that our bodies can just be sort of an instrument or a car that we drive around with that's separate from ourselves, it really belies, you know, that, it, that lies really belied in any human experience, I think, of, of any sort of intimacy of the body. And I think we see this in, in, even more acutely in the transgender movement, with the idea that the transgender movement is a great apostle for expressive individualism because it, you know, it's so, it so um, dramatically says that what I desire and who I think I am can, even in defiance of bodily reality, it can win the day. And ultimately, my body, I can be anything. But in order to say that I can be anything and that in defiance of bodily reality, you have to say that your body, you are, your body means nothing. But if my body means nothing, then I mean nothing. And so at the core, I think it's a movement of nihilism that leads to a lot of despair. But this is, you see, time done time and again, that rejection of stable human nature is a necessary component of any sort of revolutionary communist society. Um, you know, John Paul II wrote about seeing people being, their bodies being experimented on, you know, in, um, in labor camps um, or in, in Maoist China. You know, these are the themes that you can create a new human person that is going to be, you know, he's so, you're, we are socially constructed so we can be socially re-engineered in order to fit this future utopia. And one of the, the one of the darker elements I think that come from this, not that this has been so light, <laughs> um, is that what flows from it is a real attack on innocence. So um, a couple years ago, there was a lot of news stories about transgender story hours, where there's this phenomenon where these groups of transgender activists would go into libraries and they would host a transgender story hour, and there would be these men in high heels and all these make this makeup, you know. Um, dressed as this kind of weird exaggeration of a woman presented very sexually. And, you know, they would be 
read stories. They would teach the children how to twerk. And, you know, all these woke moms would be there with little Susie and Caitlin and just, you know, thinking that this was such a great way to be progressive. Um, and, and there became a lot of, you know, discussion about this. And I, and I think, um, you know, the ostensible reasons that they gave for it is that, well, number one, this is an anti-bullying effort. We want to, you know, we want to expose children at a young age to alternative lifestyles. And in that exposure, they will learn to be accepting, tolerant, and not, um, not, not bully someone who might be different. The second ostensible reason was that there might be a child who is disposed or inclined to living a, uh, a non-traditional life. And this gives them an entree into a world that they might not know otherwise. So these are the, the justifications that they give. But there's a deeper reason, I think, according to the ideology, which is that innocence is dominance. If, if for the woke. Innocence is dominance. Innocence is a threat to the movement. Why? Because innocence points to, you know, that the children would kind of be giggling and uncomfortable. There's a man and he's in high heels. This is weird. Um, and that sort of natural inclination to feel like this is a little different, that perpetuates a normative understanding in society that there is a way to be, that men should be a certain way and, and that women should be a certain way and that you can't change your, gen, change your, your gender. And insofar as, as children have that innocence, it's a signpost to something, some standard. And so, so you have to disabuse children at a younger and younger age of any sort of um, normativity in order to defeat the dominance that is uh, underneath that. Okay, into the third, the third distortion. So the, there's a, a great philosopher who's alive right now. He actually lives not too far from me, named Ed Fezzer. And he had a great article recently, and he had this one line that I thought was so good, which is he said, modern man is essentially Oedipal, seeking to kill the father and defile the mother. And I think that points succinctly to two of the, the twin targets of the movement, innocence and authority. And you see how they're connected, too. Once you have a society without authority, the innocent become very vulnerable because there's no one to protect, protect them. Um, there's that great line in uh, Narnia where someone asks about Aslan, who knows the Christ, the, the lion, the Christ figure, and the, and, and the, and the character says, is he, is he safe? And the response is, no, he's not safe, but he's good. And the implication being that there, is, there has to be some implicit kind of threat, you know, in order to actually protect when, it, when things need to be protected. There has to be some, something that the, that the authority figure can wield in that way. Um, and I think we've changed that, our understanding that innocence all, or that authority always is a threat. So we're, we're so trained to see this when we think of, you know, fatherhood or, you know, the icon of the father. We almost immediately go to like a sense of like uh, patriarchal, tyrannical domination, this is bad. Uh, and I think that's been, it's been such an effective poison in that way to, to, to distort our understanding of what a man should be. Um, and, and, you know, you, we see, you see how manipulative the movement is in that we started with the, starting with the sexual revolution. It taught men to become vicious, to become licentious, to become tomcats, as they would have said in the vernacular at the time. And from that stems this whole host of social pathologies, um, of fatherlessness, of, you know, families torn apart. And then into that sort of toxicity, the, the movement points to it and says, you see, we, masculinity is bad. You see, this is evidence that masculinity is bad. So we need to keep smashing the patriarchy. But they're prescribing the cause as if it's the cure. The very thing that caused the pathology is not going to be the antidote for it. Um, and I think we can tease this out by thinking of what masculinity is. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas defines effeminacy and emasculation as being a, a man who is unwilling to endure what is arduous for the sake of what is good. 
So a man who is enslaved or, or so prone to fulfilling his desires, fulfilling his pleasures, that he becomes utterly weak. Um, and, and, and I think that this highlights um, how, how, how much the distinctions that we need to think about in order to think about masculinity. A society with rampant fatherlessness and you know, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world and the Me Too movement is not an excess of masculinity. It's in want of it. And so we need men, but we need good men, um, knowing that the, the strong man is actually the holy man. And in holiness is where you find your strength. Um, not in its, some sort of kind of machismo or whatever the culture tells us masculinity is. Okay, so the movement wants to really collapse authority. They really, it, it's really against authority structures. Um, and the, the irony is that once you do away with authority, you actually just relocate the need for it. And so it becomes, this is why the movement tends to become tyrannical, is because you eliminate um, you eliminate good authority, and then all of a sudden you have a society that can't rule itself and has to be ruled externally. Um, and this is, so this is an avenue for an increase of state power. Okay. Um, and I think alongside with that idea of the good um, father, I was talking to um, a really good, very progressive grandmother that I know dearly and love. And she and her husband grandparent the kids the same way. They discipline similarly. They play with their kids similarly. And she said, you know, it's so strange, but grandpa, when he walks in the room, he has an authority over the grandkids that I don't have. And I don't understand we're not doing anything differently. And I think there's just something in the, the makeup of, the, of, of a man that, is, that, that speaks to that sort of icon of authority. It's in his broader shoulders, deeper voice, more commanding presence in a similar way that, our, that women's bodies are made to be nurturing, comforting. You know, you think of a mother's gaze into her child's eyes, and it's the first way in which a child finds a home, really finds a home in a mother. Um, and don't hear what I'm not saying. Obviously, women can have authority, and men can be nurturing. We are whole human beings. We can have a whole host of virtues that are available to each of us, and we're called to embody each. But there's an interesting way in which we embody them a bit distinctly. I think about this with Joseph at St. Joseph and Mary. They both were chaste. But with St. Joseph, his chastity speaks to his strength in a very particular way. And with Mary, with Our Lady, her chastity speaks to her goodness and her purity. Now, she's strong and he's pure. They both, you know, they both overlap. But there's, a, there's just a manly way of being and there's a womanly way of being. Not in the thin definition of rules and relegation that I think sometimes our Protestant brothers and sisters will you know, reduce it to, but in a deeper way, in something that speaks to the very nature and expression of God's love. And I think that that is important to understand how that through the Father, we really, the movement really attacks God himself. Um, you know, God is the Father, and he's not a father because he's like a human father. Human fathers are more fatherly insofar as they more Im imitate God himself. He's the primary analgate. Um, and there, you know, I think that this is why scripture is rife with, uh, with these, you know, these, the symbol, symbolism of the, true, the truth of the, the wedding feast, of the bride and bridegroom, um, you know, that there's all of this marital and man and female, male and female um, uh, ways in speaking about these, these spiritual realities that I think aren't nice symbols or metaphors, but rather a way of understanding supernatural realities that we're giving a win, given a win to, in, window into in our bodily nature. And in disrupting that kind of uh, understanding of men and women, I think we re it really gets to the heart of our understanding of, and obscures our understanding of God. Okay. 
All right, and the last thing I would say about that is just that authority is only good authority insofar as it is obedient. The only person who has authority without reference to something higher is God himself. That, you know, the, the, Bishop Sheen has a great quote. Where he says, civilization is always in danger when those who have never learned to obey are given a right to command. And that speaks a need that good authority is actually in, uh, integral to, integrated with reverence, a desire to, a need to be reverent. A good leader is someone who knows how to be obedient. All right, so, so that's the dark stuff. <laughs> I see these guys, my son, and these guys are getting, they're running a little hope, right? You got a little hope? You feeling a little discouraged? Okay, so how are we gonna get out of this morass? I think that the, 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 what those three things point to is that we are defining the human person as, first, in the first distortion, a victim, enslaved by you know, forces outside of ourselves, unable to transcend our circumstances. In the second distortion, the expressive individualism, we're defining the human person as merely a pleasure seeker. That that's what our identity is. Um, in the first one, we are really ruptured from one another. We eradicate neighborliness. In the second one, we're ruptured from our own bodies. So we're disrupted at uh, even our core. And in the third, the rejection of authority is really speaking to uh, this sense of isolation, that we are alone in the, in the cosmos, fundamentally without God and, and, and spinning on our, on our own, that we're ruptured from our spiritual reality. We're ruptured from God himself. So I think our response has to speak to those three things in particular that rather than being ruptured from one another in grievance and defined into opposition, that we need to respond to this with a deeply personal response. There's a personalism that I think is demanded, a real knowing of one another in intimate relationship that, is, that we are called to as Catholics. Secondly, if rather than a pleasure sleep speaker, pleasure seeker, um, in defiance of bodily reality and, and reason, I think we need to be people who are firmly grounded in the truth. Um, and secondly, and you know, I think there's an effort to pit truth and kindness against each other, and, and I, that, that, that's a lie. You know, Pope Benedict once said that, um, I'm going to paraphrase, but that charity just divorced from truth is sentimentality, empty of content. And thirdly, if we are um, in the third distortion, ruptured from God himself, that we need to pe people who are deeply reverent. Um, and I think how one of the best ways to do this is to think, think about all three of those remedies as being a sense of knowledge, of really being known. First and foremost, that we have self-knowledge. Secondly, that we, we know each enter into relationship. And thirdly, that we, are, we come to know God. Um, and the church sets us on a path to this sort of intimacy, this sort of knowing. Um, you know, the, the movement is really built on accusation. You, try to find, you start to find your virtue and how you see the sins, the sins outside of yourself, the sins in other people. And the faith is continually prompting us to see the sins of ourselves through regular confession, you know, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Why? Because it's really easy to delude ourselves about how we're doing. We have a natural desire to shy away from our faults, to gloss over them, to excuse ourselves. Um, and, the, and the faith is constantly prompting us um, to, to, to see ourselves, not in, not, not in a way to denigrate ourselves, nor in a way to deify ourselves, but to just see ourselves with reality. How am I actually doing and how can I course correct? How can I struggle? And in that process, we become very aware of our need for mercy. And in that, in, in that awareness, we become emboldened to look upon the other, look upon other people in our lives with eyes of mercy. Um, knowing that, you know, that, that, that our own inner worlds are, you know, ones of struggle, failure, and redemption, uh, and, and, and therefore we should be slow to judge the inner life of another person. Um, secondly, the, you know, I think through the, the avenue of marriage and family life, 
there, I, I always say there's something really beautiful and terrible about, about that sort of intimacy, that sort of knowing and that happens in family life. It's terrible because you see your faults and you can't hide from them. You can't bifurcate yourself that I think a lot of us do now, especially in social media. We become, you know, I'm seen, but I'm not known. You know, I'm a performer and I have an audience and all these things. Um, but in family life, you're exposed, right? You're laid bare. There's someone knows you intimately. And so you have to, you, you have to see your faults. But the good, it's beautiful because you get to contend with those faults. You know, you get to struggle against them. You get to improve. And this is the, but this is a necessary, and it doesn't have to be through family life, but it can be through any sort of family, community, friendship, you know, religious community. Um, and then, of course, all of this points to being known by God. And God knows us, obviously, regardless of whether or not we, we try to go to him and, and speak to him about our struggles. He knows our struggles. Um, and, and, but insofar as we reveal them to him deliberately and, uh, and seeking him, then we become more and more aware of, of his, the way that he knows us and still loves us. And that, 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 that depth of mercy, I think, becomes more palpable in that experience. All right. Um, I mean, practically speaking, I think there's going to be a lot of ways in which people are going to find to resist this. I would encourage you just in whatever in your life to find a mission. Um, you know, there's a, in that those two definitions I gave at the beginning about being defined by love or be, being defined by hatred, you know, the definition of love gives us a mission to go out and spread that love, right? Knowing that the truth does not originate in us, it's a gift. And so we have a duty to share it, to spread it. Whereas the reverse mission, the, the, the reverse definition that we are defined by hate gives us a sort of contra-gospel message. We have the mission not to spread to people the good news that they are loved, but actually the bad news that they are hated. Um, and that's raising their consciousness. And so I think that insofar as we are become people of mission, we can find places in our lives that we can resist this movement in some way or another, whether it just be through our own prayer life, which is the most fundamental piece because this is a spiritual battle, not a political one, um, but even practical ways. And I think we're seeing that bubbling up. We're seeing it with uh, grassroots movements from on school boards. We're seeing it in some new institutions that are springing up. Um, and, and, but we're seeing with people kind of waking up to what's happening. And I think there's a new clarity, and that clarity gives people a lot of courage and confidence. Um, and that can spread because, you know, a few people resisting something is uh, a fringe thing, but a, a whole host of people resisting it becomes something formidable that you can't really turn your eyes from. Um, it's hard to know. People always ask me, where is this going? What's the end game? Like, are we just going to devolve into socialism and atheism and all these things? And I am notoriously horrible at predicting the future. I just don't know. But, um, you know, I don't know if we'll be asked at some point to, you know, give up our livelihoods or, you know, you know the worst case scenario, obviously, our lives um, or tested in our faith. But I know how we can become the type of people who can become those people that are, if called on, will be able to do that. And that's by privileging him in our daily hidden lives every day, the small hidden things. And I think there's an effort to make us think that our public lives are what, what matters. And it's really the reverse. It's our interior life. And so refine, refining our interior lives, refining those daily struggles, exa daily exam, daily resolution, exam and resolve. That's the Christian life. Examine yourself and then resolve, make a resolution, improve. You know, we struggle, we climb that mountain. Um, and I think we shouldn't be discouraged. I think, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a radical ideology and a, a people who are real true believers in all of this that are, have, I think, um, you know, the more sinister designs. But most people, I think, who are caught up in this movement are of goodwill, that they just truly think this is a movement of justice because there's a bit of a shell game going on where you think you're fighting for one thing and you don't realize that it's actually something else. Um, 
And I think a lot of those people, but then there's another group of people, I think, that are merely repeating a script, kind of parroting sort of a thing that's become the, um, the general ethos, that filter that we don't even question, but with little heart and not, you know, and in and, 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 and each person, there is that deeper longing for something that ideology cannot fulfill and that this won't ever fulfill. And so we can feel a lot of hope and that, that, the, that desire, that the human desire is really one that can't be fulfilled by this and is actually ultimately gonna be disappointed by it and wants, wants the true deep, deeper life and the, the, the deeper life of love, which this um, ideology is really antagonistic towards. So I'm so encouraged by all of you guys and this school and I think you're in the best place you can be. Um, uh, so much has come in my spiritual life just merely from moments when I was your age, committing myself to God and just trusting in his plan for my life. And to look back and think about how much that bore fruit um, just as a, a simple meager vessel. <laughs> so I would encourage you just to say yes and to embrace that, that desire and commit to it. Um, even when it's hard or even when it feels like there's a funner or easier road, that this one actually is the one that you're going to find some deep happiness and deep fulfillment through. So thanks so much. Mm -hmm.